All right. Well, I can't think of a better way to pump ourselves up than putting pictures of our face up there on the screen. So thank you, Pastor Sam, for putting together an amazing video. Thank you for that. Hey, guys, thank you for coming here today. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, and I'm so grateful to see you guys here today. There's a few surprises in the crowd, so especially to you guys, thank you for being here. I am really excited to share the word with you here today. Uh, you know, before we begin, we are in a new series. It's called Be Distinct, and this is basically a series where we're going through the four vi uh, vision distinctives of our church, the four ways in which we're different. And as Pastor Sam mentioned last week, one of the cool things about this series is that we get to hear from a different pastor each week. And I remember when this series came out and there was a list of different values that we could talk about or different visions that we could talk about, the one that I knew that I wanted to talk about was family, because that is a topic that is so near and dear to me. It instantly reminded me of a class that I took back in seminary. It was called Church as a Family, and it was taught by this guy named Dr. Joe Hellerman, who's one of my favorite professors of all time. And he actually wrote this book. It's called When the Church Was a Family. And this is an incredible book. I just thought I'd bring it and share it with you for two reasons. Number one, because it's really good. It'll blow your mind. It'll change your perspective on things but also because I want to give credit to where credit is due. A lot of what I share from today, a lot of the illustrations, some of the statistics, uh, some of the verses even are from this book. Now, here's the thing. This book is, uh, looks like 234 pages. And so that means today's sermon is going to be about three hours long. So just buckle in. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that long. It'll be considerably shorter, but we do have a lot to get in today. So let me pray for us and we'll hop right in. God, thank you so much for this time that we have. It's such an amazing opportunity to just be here in your presence together. So I pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice, not mine. We would hear your visions, not ours, and that as we leave this place, we would be more like you than when we walked in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So December 19, 1997, more than 25 years ago, one of the biggest movies of all time was released with a budget of over $200 million, never-before-seen, cutting-edge special effects, and a star-studded cast that featured Hollywood's brightest young star. This movie went on to achieve amazing, unprecedented success. Right? It was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, won 11 of them, and grossed over $1.84 billion at initial release, becoming the first movie ever to cross that billion-dollar threshold. So what movie am I talking about? Yes, thank you, old people. Titanic. <laughs> Over 25 years ago, this movie was released to critical acclaim, smashing records. But what made this movie so successful, it wasn't just the big budget and the iceberg and the special effects and the ship and Leonardo DiCaprio, certainly that didn't hurt. But what really drove moviegoers into the theaters and captivated their, their attention and even made some of them come back, it was the story. Right? It was the plot, a good old-fashioned romantic love story. So if you've seen the movie, let me refresh your mind. If you haven't seen the movie, let me fill you in. Basically, there's a young woman. She's wealthy. Her name is Rose, and she's aboard this ship, the Titanic, sitting in first class. And she's there with her fiancé, who's also young and wealthy. He's in first class as well. But here's the thing. They're engaged to be married, but they don't love each other. Rose hates her fiancé, and for good reason. He's a jerk. He's obnoxious, he's arrogant, he's stuck up, he's prideful. Worst of all, he doesn't treat her very well at all. Which leads to the question then, why are they engaged? Well, we find the answer to that story, right? As we watch the movie, Rose has this dialogue with her mom, and what we find out is that her dad has died, he's off the scene, and before he died, he made a bunch of foolish decisions and basically squandered all of the family fortunes. And so now Rose and her family, they're at risk, they're in danger of losing their status as one of the wealthy and elite in the upper echelon of British society. And so this marriage to this young, rich guy 
is a way to save her family. It's a way to save their honor and status and fortune so they can remain in these upper echelons, in this upper tier of the culture. It's an arranged marriage. She's basically taking one for the team, right? Biting the bullet, sacrificing her own personal satisfaction for the well-being of her extended family. Well, the story goes on, and of course, she meets another guy. He's young, he's charming, he's handsome. His name is Jack. He's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And to make a really long three-hour movie story short, basically, they fall in love. The sparks begin to fly instantly. The flames of burning hot romance indeed do burn a little too hot, if you remember <laughs> some of the scenes of that movie. But they fall in love. And so now Rose basically is stuck in this quandary. She has a dilemma. She has a question. Who is she going to choose? Is she going to choose this rich jerk of a fiancé that can take care of her family? Or is she going to follow her heart? Go with the love of her life. Go for Jack. And for the audience who was watching that movie at that time, the answer was painfully obvious. What was it? Jack. Go for Jack. Dump the jerk. Forget the rich guy. Forget what he can do with the family. you got to follow your heart. And there are songs written about this. Don't worry, I will not sing the song. <laughs> but you follow your heart. You do what makes you happy. You do you. And so, of course, as the movie goes on, that's exactly what Rose does, right? She dumps the jerk. She picks Jack. And when she does, the whole theater, like literally the whole theater, erupts in cheers and applause. And they run off together all the way to winning Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Story of the Year. Well, here's the interesting thing. Same movie, same story. But if we take that and we put it in a different place, in a different time, to a different culture, we could actually expect to find a very different and opposite reaction. Take, for example, if we take the story Titanic and we played it in a movie theater in Jesus' day, first century ancient Near Eastern Palestine, and let's say we play this movie in a Jerusalem theater with Aramaic subtitles, and now the people like Mary, Martha, Simon, and Andrew, they're watching this movie, you know what they would do? They wouldn't cheer for Rose. They would boo her right off the screen. They would be mortified. They'd be appalled. Like, what are you doing? Because when they see that scene where she slaps the fiancé, when she basically leaves him and goes with Jack, they would be like, what are you doing? Are you stupid? And the reason why is because they couldn't understand how someone would sacrifice the well-being of their family to follow their own individual heart. It's just such a selfish thing to do. And what this basically goes to show is that different people, we look at the world in different ways different cultures. We have different values, ideals, attitudes. So for the people of Jesus' time, cultural anthropologists, that's smart people who study this kind of thing, they actually have a name for that. It's called a strong group culture. What is a strong group culture? Well, it means a group is strong in your culture, right? <laughs> Very obvious. It means when you make decisions in your life, the group comes first. Well, the opposite is true in cultures like ours. In the Western world, particularly in contemporary United States, although not only the United States. I know we have like a couple Canadians in the house, so shout out to Canada. God bless you all as well. But in the Western world in general, we're not like that. We live in a world where anthropologists who study this kind of stuff call a weak group culture. And basically that means that the individual comes first. The goals, the aspirations, the needs of myself, that takes priority over my family or group or institution in my life. And so when it comes to who I'm going to get married to, how do I make that choice? I follow my heart. When it comes to what school I'm going to go to, what job I'm going to have, what career I'm going to have, I think about me. And the same attitude also happens to show up 
when it comes to church. Now, what do I mean? Well, when it comes to church, how do we think about church? Well, I think for a lot of people, the way that we analyze church or that we think about it, it is we go to church, right? Or I go to church, rather, in order to have my spiritual needs met so that I can meet God and grow in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds all good and well, but there's a lot of I's, me's, and my's in that sentence. And so what I want to suggest for us here today is that although that is a cultural view of the church, it's actually not a biblical one. Although that's what the culture tells us we should think, it's actually not what the Bible tells us that we should think. And even though that's what the world tells us we should want, it's not at all what God wants. It's not what he desires. And so with that said, then, the million-dollar question is, what does he want? What does God desire for his church? What attitude, what mindset, what view does he want us to have about this place that we're sitting in here today? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that is the exact topic that we'll be exploring here together. And the way that we're going to do this is by asking and answering three very important questions. Three truths that we're going to look at. Three questions that we will ask that we'll answer. And those questions are this. Number one, what is God's vision for the church? What does God desire for us? What is his will for you and me? What's his vision for the church? Question number two, what does that look like? What does that mean, right? Once we learn this vision, what will that look like? When a church grasps that vision, when it becomes the kind of body that he wants us to be, what will happen? What will we experience? What does that look like? And number three, finally, what does that mean for us, right? What are the implications? What are the applications? What do I do next? So three questions. What's God's vision? What does that look like? And what does that mean? Question number one, what is God's vision for the church? Well, I am happy to give you that answer. According to scripture, God's vision for the church is this, that we become a unified family of believers who follow him together. God's desire for us is that we become brothers and sisters in Christ who are united in our pursuit of him. That we would not be a bunch of individual me's, but that we would be one we, like a family, and that we worship together. You see, we see this vision emerge in the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Early on in the Gospel of Mark, as he's gathered around a large group of people, he shares with them a vision, a picture of how he thinks about his followers. And what he says is the most important symbol I could think of to describe the people who truly follow after me is that they are my family. Let's take a look at how he says it. It's found in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn there together? We're in the Gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter number 3, verses 32 through 35. You can read it with me. I'll read it out loud for you. It says this. A crowd was sitting around... And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said this. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus paints this powerful picture, his vision for what he thinks of his disciples, those who do the will of God. He says, they are my family. That's the most prominent symbol that we see that Jesus gives. And it's that picture of brothers and sisters that will then be interwoven into every teaching that Jesus gives in the gospel about how we are to relate to one another. We are brothers, we are sisters. It doesn't stop right there with the gospels, but it continues because the apostle Paul picks right up on that same imagery of family and he shares that with his readers in the New Testament church as well. 
And he says to them, we are brothers and sisters, as he continues to implore his readers about the need and necessity to act like family, to grow in unity, community, harmony, humility, love, all the while referring to them in these, in these kinship and family terms, like brother, sister, family, mom, dad, heir, inheritance. I mean, sometimes we miss it because it happens so much. But all you got to do is pick up an epistle, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, whatever it is, and just count the number of times Paul refers to someone in the church as his brother. In fact, you don't even have to do that because you know what? This book did it for us, and it's 277 times, right? 277 times Paul uses family language to describe our relationship to one another. And what becomes clear as passed down from Jesus to Paul and now to us is that God's vision for us is that we are a family. We are a family of believers united in our pursuit of him. We are brothers and sisters in Christ who worship together. And that's question number one. What's God's vision for the church? That we become a family. Well, what does that look like then? We're a family. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. So if we're a church that grasps that vision, if we're a biblical, godly church and we become brothers and sisters, then what happens to us? What does that look like? What do we experience? Well, a lot of things happen, but I only have a few minutes. I can't talk about every single trait and characteristic of this godly church, right? But there's two of them that really stand out to me. As we look at Scripture, as we look at the early church and what happened there, there's two really important traits that I want to share with you here this morning. The first one is this. When we grasp God's vision for us, we become a family. One thing that will happen is that we will share our stuff with one another. We'll share our stuff. That means our possessions, the material things that we own, our finances, our resources. We'll share it with each other because we love each other and we care. We want to bless other people. We want to make sure that needs are met. And again, this is something that's described very clearly in the Bible. For example, in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke describes on numerous occasions the ways in which the church were so united and they loved each other so much that they were willing to share all that they had. We see one picture of this in the book of Acts, chapter number 4. So let's turn to this passage. The book of Acts, chapter number 4. Again, we're in verses 32 through 35, and this is what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time even, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Amen. And again, this powerful, vibrant picture that the scriptures paint for us of what happens when the church grasps God's vision. Not only do they become a family, but they become a family that shares their stuff to bless other people, to make sure that needs are met. You know, this reminds me a lot about our church, actually. It reminds me of that time that one of our college students the other day, he had a a really difficult time financially. And because of this, he couldn't make one of his key payments in order to continue with his school education. And as that deadline came near, there was a real risk that this student was going to have all his classes dropped. He would be withdrawn from school and wouldn't be able to continue with his education. Well, when that happened, someone at our church found out. 
And what did they do? They said, I'll pay your tuition for you. And so they covered 100% that payment so that this student could stay in school, could continue, pardon me, with their education. Because that's what happens in that kind of church when we grasp God's vision. We share our stuff so that needs are met. It reminds me of that time that I was out here in the lobby, right? And I was talking to someone, and he said, hey, Pastor Peter, are you guys going to go on a retreat with the college group? And I said to him, well, we don't have plans for it. He said, why not? I said, well, it's just it's not in the budget. I mean, if I were to, to rent a place, that would be like more than half of our entire one-year budget just for, for one event. And before I could say two sentences, he goes, hey, pick a place. Pick a date. I'll cover the cost. It's in your budget now. And so we went on a retreat for two days with our college students. And we spent a couple days just in this amazing location, growing closer to Jesus together. Because someone at this church looked at our college students and said, that's my brother, my sister. Now, I was going to say son or daughter, but he did something nice, and I don't want him to feel old. So I just say (laughs) brother and sister. Right? That's what happens at a church that grasps God's vision. When we become a family, we share our stuff. We share our resources. We bless other people. We take care of each other's needs. Well, there's a second thing that happens at this church. Not only do we share our stuff, but we share our hearts. We share our emotions, right? We grow connected. We draw closer. We bond. We have emotions that we give to other people. Now, let me clarify this just a little bit. I don't mean we just get emotional with one another for the sake of being emotional, right? We don't just walk around feeling warm and fuzzy and having butterflies in our stomachs and being touchy-feely. That's not what I mean. But what I mean by that, we share our hearts. What I mean is that we care enough about each other that we invest in their lives and we know what's going on, right? It means you're worth it to me to know what's going on in your life and you're worth it for me to share my heart with you and your heart with me. There's a bond. There's a connection. There's an intimacy. Again, we see this in Scripture. The book of Philippians, for example, it's loaded with affective terms, terms of emotion, terms expressing the emotion that really characterized the dynamic that happened at that church. Take, for example, Philippians chapter number 2. I'll read just two verses for you. But the book of Philippians chapter number 2, this is what Paul says. But I think it is necessary to send back to you my friend, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier Epaphroditus, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs, verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you have heard that he was ill. That's only two verses, but there's a lot going on here. Basically, Epaphroditus here is one of Paul's friends. Obviously, they're close because he says he's my what? Brother. There you have There's that term again. They're close. They're brothers. But Epaphroditus, apparently, he also is extremely connected to the people at Philippi. Because what happened is, as we discover a couple of verses later, Epaphroditus becomes sick. He's about to die. He's on his deathbed. And the only thing that Epaphroditus can think about is coming back home to see the people of Philippi. Paul says, he longs to be with you. There's an emotional connection. He wants to see them so badly. Why? Because he knows how badly they care about him. Because you have heard that he is ill, is what Paul says. There's this dynamic. There's this connection of emotion. I long to see you. I just, I'm torn apart because I'm away from you. And same with you. You want to see me. And we have this picture of affection, of emotion. And that's littered all throughout Paul's 
epistles. Terms like, I long to see you. Terms like, beloved, dear. These are emotional terms which show to us, reveal to us, the kind of stuff that was happening within that church. There's a bond, there's a connection. And when we become a family, we have that bond, we have that emotion, we share our hearts. To share our hearts with one another is like when the four girls in your small group come over to your house and they take you out. Right? They come over to your house, they take you out, they have an impromptu, impromptu girls' night out because a few hours ago they got your text when you told them, girls, I'm going to be a mom. Praise the Lord. And they know how hard that journey was, that it was years in the making. And they share their hearts. They want to celebrate with you. They want to encourage you. So you go out and you spend all night just sharing stories of what it's like to be a mom, sharing the best baby products that are out there on the market, talking about that one cute cafe down the street that has that really nice open patio area that can be rented out. It's going to be perfect for the baby shower. Right? You share your hearts. You celebrate together. You rejoice together. To share your hearts with one another is when those same four girls come over to your house six weeks later under completely different circumstances because they got your text message, this time saying, girls, I lost a baby. Pray for me. When you have to send that painful, heartbreaking text sharing about your miscarriage. And they come over bringing coffee and your favorite snacks. And they say, hey, look, I know you said you needed space, but we just want to be here with you. And they come over and they stay up all night, not laughing and sharing stories, but just crying, praying, sometimes saying nothing at all. Because that's what happens when the church becomes a family. We share our hearts. We share our joys. We share our failures. We share our ups. We share our downs. We share things that make us happy. We share things that make us cry. But we share our hearts we share our emotions. We invest in one another's life. So question number three then for us. What does this mean here for us today? Last thing, guys. What does it mean for us here today? What are the implications? What are the applications? Well, again, there's a ton of things that we could talk about, but we don't have time to talk about every single thing that we could do in response to what God wants us to be. But there's two simple things that I want to share with you here today. Two simple steps that we can take. Number one is this. Go to church. And it's as simple as that. Like literally, physically, go to church. And I feel it's important for us to say that because I think these days in our culture, it's kind of become the norm where maybe we've become a little comfortable being comfortable. And we've kind of convinced ourselves that we don't always need to go to church because, well, I have my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And although that is good and important, if that's all you have is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, well, I'm here to tell you that's not biblical. That's not what God wants for you. That's not his desire for you to only relate to him as an individual outside of relational accountability and community. That's not what Paul talks about. In fact, when we talk about our relationship as humans to God, Paul talks about that in two terms. He says, our Lord, our Savior. And I did use that term, our Lord, our Savior. Lord and Savior in connection with us as humans happens 77 times in Scripture, and 75 of those 77 times, Paul says, our Lord, our Savior, and only twice does he say, my Lord, my Savior. And I think that goes a long way in showing us how he thinks that we should relate to Jesus, and that is together as a family. That means we need to be here physically with one another so that that can happen. Go to church. 
Well, there's a second thing I want to suggest for you guys here today, and we'll be done. Number two, the second thing, join a small group. Join a small group. Because coming to church is the first step. But if we're really going to grow together to have the opportunity to do those two things, to share our stuff, to share our hearts, we need to have a form, an opportunity for that to happen. And at this church, I can't think of a better opportunity than small groups. And hey, guess what? May 7th. Perfect transition, right? May 7th is when small groups are starting back up. That means if you're in a small group, we would love to see you guys come back out so that we can grow. And if you've never been in a small group, May 7th, that's your date. Make it your first time so that we can connect together. Because family is not just a distinctive of Jericho Road Church. It is who we are. It is who God called us to be. At this time, I want to conclude our message And as we do so, I can't think of a better way to do it than by taking communion together. And so at this time, I'm going to invite our praise team up. And I want to lead us in this time of communion. And the reason why is because of two reasons. Number one, when we think about communion and we look in the Bible, it is an amazing picture of people coming together and breaking bread in community. In fact, the first ever Lord's Supper wasn't done with one individual or two, but it was Jesus talking to the very people that he said, you are my mother, brother, and sisters. And they shared the Lord's Supper together, and that's what I want to do. But the second reason why is because when we take communion, it brings to the forefront in our minds and in our hearts the gospel message. And when we think about the gospel message, there is no greater example of what it means to put family first. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus gave his life so that we could live. And so right now, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to take communion with me. We have these kits. They're available in the chair in front of you. If you're in the front row, they will be underneath your chair. And in just a moment, we're going to take these two elements. And we'll do it a little bit differently than what we usually do. We'll take these two elements all together as one body. So the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he was in the upper room. And in this room, he had a special Passover meal with his friends. And at this meal, he got this loaf of bread. He tore off the pieces, and then he passed it around. And he said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this often, and when you do, do it in remembrance of me. So at this time, we're going to take this bread together, and as we do, we'll do it in remembrance of Jesus. And after he passed out the bread. He also poured out a cup of wine. And he took this wine and he distributed it to those same friends. And he said to them, this is my blood, which has been poured out for the forgiveness of many. Every time you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Jericho Road Church, we believe that this juice is a symbol of Jesus' blood, which has been poured out to free us from our sins. At this time, let's drink of it and let's do it together in remembrance of him. Pray together. 
Lord God, we thank you so much just for the gospel message that you gave us the ultimate picture of love and sacrifice when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And Lord, I pray that that gospel would live brightly within us, that we would manifest that and that we would give our lives for others as well. Lord, may we be a picture of the church that you want us to be. Would you move in our hearts to shape us to be the kind of church that you call us to be? And may we truly be a reflection of you and your love. In Jesus' name we pray.